turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, we're going to be finishing up today the Lord's Prayer. I ask you again to read along with me as I read this portion of God's Word. Uh, We'll be reading again from verse 19 to the end of verse 13. Our Lord said, pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Over the past several weeks, as we have considered the Lord's Prayer, I have sought to demonstrate to you that prayer is about God. This is the prevailing witness of the scriptures This is the prevailing thought of the early church, that prayer is about God. Despite this, prayer today has devolved into nothing more than a laundry list of needs, wants, and desires of men. Prayer meetings have largely become nothing more than what some would call organ recitals. Help sister so-and-so's knee. Help brother so-and-so's kidney. And not that there is no place for those things, but this is not the sum total of our time when we come together and we pray before God. Prayer has largely become, instead of being God-centered, self-centered and self-focused. I would pin the shift in the church's view of prayer and many other things on two major movements that have taken place in our society. One, the self-esteem movement. The self-esteem movement gained a footing in our culture during the 1980s and has infiltrated the church Robert Schuller, who was the pastor of the, of the Crystal Cathedral, who had his own show, The Hour of Power, back in the 1980s, who learned from a man by the name of Norman Vincent Peale, was a major bridge for introducing the self-esteem doctrine into the church. It was a doctrine that was rooted in pride. In this Many biblical doctrines were redefined. For example, in his, he wrote a book called Self-Esteem, The New Reformation. And in this book, the question was asked of him, what is sin? He says, sin is any act or thought that robs myself or another human being of his or her self-esteem. So in this theology that he held, there's no room for praying about our sin because 
sin robs us of our self-esteem. Another question that was asked of him, what does it mean to be born again? He says to be born again means that we must be changed from a negative to a positive self-image, from inferiority to self-esteem, from fear to love, from doubt to trust. He goes on to say, how can this happen? It happens through a meeting with the ideal one. This is who he calls Christ. He calls Christ the ideal one. He's, he's not Lord and Savior. He's not the God-man. He's what he calls the ideal one. He says, from my perspective, I would expect such an ideal one to ignore or reject me because of my own shortcomings. But if, in fact, the ideal one receives me as his peer, is what he says, as his peer and treats me as an equal even though he knows who and what I am and the ill that I've done and the good I've failed to do, then something profoundly deep will happen at the core of my personality. He says, I will be born again. And so in this theology, not only can you not speak about sin, but you cannot speak about a majestic God. How can you talk about a majestic God when this God makes you feel inferior? How can you talk about a high and lofty God if this God makes you feel small and, and in some, to some degree insignificant? Well, you can't. You can't. And so prayer devolves into a chummy relationship with God, and we bring God down to our level, and he is our homeboy, as some people would say. He's, he's my, 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 my friend in a, in a very irreverent way. Another movement that has affected the church's view on prayer is the health, wealth, and the prosperity movement in all of its forms. And whether it be the, the T.D. Jakes kind, the the, 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 the Steve Furtick kind, whatever form it takes, it is still the same doctrine. This movement teaches that man is a little God and that his words have creative power and he can speak into existence that which he desires, all that his heart desires. He simply needs to Proclaim those words, give some sort of affirmation of those words, and it is so. And all of this has produced what I would coin as narcissistic prayer. Prayer that is focused on man. Prayer that is focused on simply man's wants, his desires, what he perceives his felt needs to be as opposed to what the, the, the reformers taught, as opposed to what the Bible teaches, that prayer is about God. It's about God. I sought to demonstrate to you this reality. Prayer begins with God, and it should end with God. It begins with God, and it should end with God. 
We looked last week at the larger catechism, the Westminster larger catechism, and we asked the question, what does the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer teach us? The conclusion of the Lord's Prayer teaches us to, first we said, enforce our petitions with arguments which are to be taken, not from any worthiness in ourselves or in any other creature, but from God. And with our prayers to join praises, ascribing to God alone eternal sovereignty, omnipotency, and glorious excellencies, in regard whereof as he is able and willing to help us, so we may by faith are so we may by faith are emboldened to plead with him that he would and quietly to rely upon him that he will fulfill our requests and to testify this our desire and assurance we say amen. The Lord teaches us that as we come to the end of our prayers, we must acknowledge God. We must acknowledge God. Prayer is not about man. Prayer is about God. I said that several times because I want that to arrest you. Prayer is finally and ultimately about the glory of God. And our Lord teaches us this here in the doxology. When he says, we conclude our prayers with these words, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Now last week as we looked at the larger catechism, we, I structured my outline in this way. And I gave you three points. The first point was the enforcing arguments. And I never got to those other two points. The second point was the eternal ascription. And the last one was the emboldened assurance. Last week, we looked at the eternal or sorry, the enforcing arguments. And we said that when we come before God, we, we come before God, as, as, we, as it says in here, not based upon our own worthiness in ourselves or, or in any other creature, but we come before God, we make arguments from who God is, from who God is. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. And so our arguments are not made from anything in us. We have no ground in ourselves to plead with God, to come before the presence of God, to go before the throne of grace. Our arguments are grounded totally and finally in the person of God and all that he is and all of his works and all that he has, is in his essence. This is how we come before God. We enforce our petitions with arguments. God, hallowed be your name, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Father, your kingdom come, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Your will be done, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Why should God answer our prayer concerning our needs, 
Give us this day our daily bread, Lord, because yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Forgive us our sins. Keep us from sinning from the evil one, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And so we are encouraged to make the enforcing arguments from the doxology. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Those are the enforcing arguments. This week we will begin looking at the last two points, the eternal ascription and the emboldened assurance. Let us consider the eternal ascription. He says, yours is the kingdom the power, and the glory forever. From the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 196, and answering what does the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer teach us? It says, and with our prayers to join praises, ascribing to God alone eternal sovereignty, omnipotency, and glorious excellency. Eternal ascription means that we give God praise. We ascribe to God the worth of his name. We acknowledge who God is. We acknowledge what he has done. Ascribing to God is very common in the scriptures. Ascribing worth to God. Acknowledging God's worth, his glory is all over the scriptures, especially in the Psalms. In Psalm 29, the psalmist writes, Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. Now, as he says this, he's not adding something to God. He's not enhancing any of God's divine excellencies? No, he is acknowledging who God is. And so when we, uh, when we make ascription to God, these eternal ascriptions in, in the doxology, we are acknowledging who God is. We're acknowledging his might. We're acknowledging his glory. He even says it here. He says, worship the Lord. Holy array. We are worshiping God. It's worship. Do you consider prayer as worship? Prayer is worship. See, when I put it in that context there, when I say on the other end, prayer is about God, and then when we say prayer is worship, it makes sense, doesn't it? That prayer is about God because prayer is worship. We are worshiping God. Again, we're not just coming before God with a laundry list of needs and wants. No, we are coming to God and we are giving glory and praise to our God. In Psalm 96, the psalmist writes, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Again, we're not adding anything to God's glory 
or his strength. These are intrinsic with who God is. He is he doesn't need anything. We don't enhance God. We don't add to God. We don't augment who God is. No, God is in his fullness. He has always been in those ways. He says, ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering. This is a language of worship. And come into his courts. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before him all the earth. We acknowledge in this the, the divine excellencies. God is marvelous. He's beautiful. He's wonderful. He is par excellence. He is the highest thought of man. Notice that these divine excellencies are eternal. He says here, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Forever. The excellencies of God are not temporary, but rather eternal. In fact, God's possession of these divine excellencies have been from all of eternity. He did not grow into these qualities. He did not evolve into these excellencies. These excellencies are underived. They are intrinsic in the being of God. What are these divine excellencies? Well, he lists them here for us. He says, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. He speaks here of God's eternal sovereignty. He says, yours is the kingdom. Yours is the kingdom. This is speaking here of the sovereignty of God. That God possesses the right to rule over his creation. He presides over his vast kingdom. He is the sovereign king. He has divine authority. He exercises his authority. It's an authority that is not paralleled. It is an unrivaled sovereignty. It is a sovereignty that is unrestrained and unrestricted. It's a sovereignty that is over all of creation. It has been God's from before time began. God has been sovereign. God is over all of the affairs of creation, all of mankind's going forth and his comings and goings and all that he does is under the sovereign rule of God. In Psalm 115.3, the psalmist writes, but our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. I love that verse, the simplicity of it but the profundity of that, those words there. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Even when we pray, we pray, our Father who is in heaven, that, 
that acknowledges there, even in that word there, that God is sovereign. He does whatever he pleases. Reminds us that he is indeed our father, but he is our sovereign father. That there is both imminency with God and transcendence with God. God is not like us. That's why the psalmist, we, we, we read the psalmist and, and they, they, they give us the balance that we must have when we come before God and we approach God. In Psalm 97.1, the first verse in that psalm says, the Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. But in Psalm 99, the first verse says, the Lord reigns. Let the earth tremble. Let him tremble. There's the imminency of God. There's the, 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 the fatherhood of God. And yet, yet we approach God as our father, but he is our father who is in heaven. And so there, there is to be a trembling when we stand in the presence of God. There is not to be a casual approaching to God. It's a sovereign God. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Ephesians 1, 11 says, having been predestined according to his purpose, God's purposes is who works all things, all things after the counsel of his will. The word all there, you know what it means? It means all. It doesn't mean some of the things, some of the times. Does it mean all of the things, some of the times? It means all things at all times, in all places, in all realms and all of his creation, God is working out his eternal plan. His divine sovereignty is ruling over all. He will accomplish his will. All that he has purposed will come to pass as he has purposed it, when he has purposed it, how he has purposed it, through whom he has purposed it. You see, this is contrary to what most of the church believes. So they don't like a God like that. They don't like a sovereign God who, 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 who we can say of him that our God is in the heaven. He does what he pleases. No, we want a God. The church wants a God who does what the church pleases, what the world pleases, what man pleases. No, you don't want a God like that. I'm going to tell you that now. You want a God who does whatever he pleases because he is a good God, and whatever he pleases is good and holy and righteous. The now deceased word of faith movement did not acknowledge the sovereignty of God. His name is Miles Monroe in a interview with a I saw with him, the video moderator asked him the question, or he, he, asked, he said to him, he says, we get the mind of God about his will. We pray it. When we pray it, we give him legal right. He's, so he's kind of posing this as a question to him. And here's Miles Monroe's response. He says, to perform it. He said, yes, 
He says, let me define prayer for you in this, in this show. He said this, prayer is man giving God permission or license to interfere in earth's affairs. In other words, prayer is earthly license for heavenly interference. The video moderator says, that's incredible. That is incredible. I agree with him. It's incredible. He goes on to say, God could do nothing on earth. Nothing has God ever done on earth without a human giving him access. So the video moderator goes on and says, so he's always looking for that somebody. And Miles Monroe responds, he says, always looking for a human to give him power permission. In other words, God has the power, but you get the permission. God got the authority and the power, but you've got the license. So even though God can do anything, he can only do what you permit him to do. That's not a sovereign God. That's not who Jesus is saying that we are to, 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 to speak of when we pray and come before God. That's not the God of the Bible. No, our God does whatever he pleases. And he does not ask man for permission. He doesn't seek the counsel of man. No one can counsel God all wise. No one. No one. And so when we come before God, we, we end our prayers in the doxology with eternal, eternal sovereignty. We also speak here of those divine excellencies of being eternal omnipotence. He says, for yours is the kingdom and the power. The power, God is omnipotent. And it makes sense. If he's sovereign, he's omnipotent. If he does all that he pleases and he can do that, it makes sense that he has to be omnipotent. He has to be. He has to be all-powerful. That no one can stay the hand of the Lord. No one can thwart his plans. Why? Why is it that God's will does come to pass? Why is it that we can say that he does whatever he pleases because he is omnipotent? He's omnipotent. He is able to bring it to pass by his omnipotency. He has eternal omnipotence. This is very clear from the scriptures that God can do anything. Sarah was was announced to Sarah that she was about to give birth. And as she laughed and um, the angel of the Lord heard her and questioned her about that, he asked her the question, a rhetorical question. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? And of course the answer is no. Nothing's too difficult for God. He is omnipotent. All power belongs to him. The Lord replied to Moses, 
In Numbers chapter 11, verse 23, is the Lord's power limited? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not, as he makes promises to Moses. I love the language of scripture at times when it speaks of the hand of the Lord and Time speaks of the hand of the Lord being short. Is the hand of the Lord too short? Is it? No, God's hand is not too short. We're using their anthropomorphic language to, to convey to us something concerning who God is. In Isaiah 50, verse 2, it says, Why was there no man when I came? When I call, why was there none to answer? He says, is my hand so short that it cannot ransom? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, I dry up the sea with my rebuke. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. The question there was, is God's hand too short? So short that it cannot ransom? Of course not. The other day, I was trying to get something in the back of my car, and I had, a, had something in this hand, my left hand, and I was reaching in with this hand. And I, I was reaching, and I was reaching, and I couldn't get it, and I, so I put something in my hand to try to knock it back over to me so it could then be within my reach, and I still couldn't reach it, and I was straining, and I ended up pulling something up here, and it was... You all know how that is when you get older and you start trying to stretch things that haven't been stretched in a while. And I was in pain. God's hand's not like that. Nothing is too difficult for God. God's hand is not too short. Is he not the one who dried up the waters so that the children of God could walk over the dry land? Is he not the one who caused the sun to stand still for 24 hours? Is he not the one who slew the great giant with a single stone? Is he not the one who told the storm to hush and be still and the raging seas obeyed him? Is he not the one who raised Lazarus from the dead after four days in the grave? Is he not the one who took on flesh and blood and lived a perfect life, and died an atoning death for sinners, is he not the one who was raised on the third day, who is seated at the right hand of God, who now is in his session interceding for sinners? And we can say, this one, and agree with Dr. Luke, and he says the things Impossible with men are possible with God. God's arm is not too short. He possesses eternal omnipotence. He also possesses eternal glory. The glory of God. This is God's intrinsic glory. All that the Bible reveals of us, of who God is. When we speak of the glory of God, we are speaking of the divine attributes of God. The sum total of all that God is, is 
culminating in that one word there, the glory of God. The Old Testament uses a word, the kabod of God. It has the idea of something being heavy and weighty. So when we speak of the glory of God, we are speaking of the glory of God, the greatness of God, all that God is, the sum total of his attributes compiled in all that he is. And, and, and when we speak of that, we, it's something that our minds can't even wrap around because we are speaking of something that is infinite and beyond the creature. Beyond the creature. But when we pray, we acknowledge his eternal glory. It's eternal glory. It's something that has been a part of who God is. He's always been glorious. God hasn't changed. God hasn't grown or, or morphed into something greater than he is. No, God is immutable. He is who he is from all of eternity. And so when we pray, we acknowledge the excellencies of God. And that is the eternal ascription. Finally, let us consider the emboldened assurance. The emboldened assurance. He says, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And he closes with these words. Amen. Amen. We think sometimes that our prayers are to end. For in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. And we just sometimes it just becomes commonplace for us to end our prayers like that without considering the reality that there is a lot behind those words. Those words carry with them a weightiness that we don't always consider when we come to the Lord in prayer. He says, we conclude our prayers with the amen. So be it. So be it. It is true. It is true. It's having a confidence as we pray. When we pray, we don't come to God with, with, with doubting, do we? We're not to come to God doubting that he will answer our prayers. Why not? Because we don't, we don't ground our confidence in the prayer itself. We ground our confidence in the God who is able to answer our prayer, the one who is the eternal sovereignty, who has eternal sovereignty, and eternal power and eternal glory, it is because of him that we have assurance in this time. And we say at the end of our prayers, the amen. Amen. We have confidence as we pray. We don't come doubting God. We have full assurance that the petitions that we bring before God 
God is able to answer, and he's also willing to answer because we base it upon the character of God, not because, again, of anything in us or because of the, the eloquence of our prayer or anything like that. No, we, we, we have confidence and assurance of those things because of who God is, of who God is. And so we say the amen. We say the amen. Martin Luther has commented on this. This word here, amen. He says, amen is simply the expression of an unquestioning faith that prayer is not a gamble and that God certainly is not lying when he promises to grant what we pray for. It's not a gamble, brothers and sisters. It's not a gamble. When we pray, let us pray in confidence and assurance because of our great God. And when we go before the throne of grace, let us go with a boldness, not because of anything in us, but because of what we have in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who is our high priest, who was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin, and yet who now gives us access to the throne of of grace. Let us go with assurance and confidence and go to our God with large petitions because he is able and he is willing. Let us go to God, our great God and Savior, with with the promises of God, knowing that he will not deny himself, that although we are unfaithful, he is faithful. For he cannot deny himself. Let us go in full assurance, full assurance to the throne of grace, that we might receive grace and mercy to help in our time of need. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we again come before you and we thank you for the your word. We thank you for the, the confidence that we prayerfully have gained over the weeks as we come before you, before your throne of grace. Help us to have that assurance. Help us to come to you a right God. Help us to have that right balance as we come before your throne of grace. We would address you as our Father who is in heaven. We would know that you are the, that you possess eternal sovereignty and eternal power and eternal glory. May we come before you. But with the petitions that are in accordance with your will, Lord, and those things are in accordance with your sovereign will and your revealed will. May we have confidence that you'll answer those things. Help us to have assurance, God. Help us to not doubt. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Grant us grace that we might pray with with that confidence and assurance 
We would not be like double-minded man who comes before you, doubting you. Lord, may we have a, conf- have a confidence in you that is unparalleled and unshakable, not because of our prayers or the eloquence of our prayers, but because of you, our Savior and our great God. We ask this in the name of our blessed Savior and for his sake. Amen.